whereas the reality is acts doesn't really finish no. because we're still the acts of the church. We're still mm-hmm. in that act of God's drama. I think with Flannery, that's what she gives us. So she gives us the ability to still be in that act. And as artists and authors and writers, we don't have to only look to the past and be like, well, wasn't it great when C.S. Lewis wrote good stuff? And wasn't it great when Flannery mm-hmm. O'Connor wrote great books? In some sense, reading her unfinished work reminds us that, yes, she was a genius, but she was a, she had a gift and she was faithful with that gift. And what can happen if we're faithful with our gifts? Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey, this is Peter Bell, and I am in the beautiful wine country of Central Coast, California, in Santa Maria, north end of Santa Maria, in Santa Barbara County. I serve Redeemer OPC, Redeemer Orthodox Presbyterian Church on the north end of Santa Maria. We meet at Temple Bethel, which is right there, Temple Bethel, at 11 a.m. for Sunday service and 9.45 a.m., so just before that for Sunday school. For all ages, we have kids Sunday school, adult Sunday school, or all Sunday school at 9.45. You can find us at discoverredeemer.org with one R, again, discoverredeemer.org. We have a bunch of activities throughout the week, but most importantly, Sunday, we have the gospel preach, the the sacraments administered, and church discipline faithfully brought out. So I hope to see you here at Redeemer OPC in Santa Maria, Central Coast, wine country of Santa Barbara. Hope to see you. Hey, everybody. This is Pastor Danny Hyde from the Oceanside United Reformed Church. I want to invite you out to our church. We meet in sunny Southern California uh, here in San Diego. And we meet at the Army Navy Academy in Carlsbad, right along the ocean, as you can see, the Pacific. And uh, we meet every Sunday at 10 o'clock in the morning. We uh, hear the Word of God, we hear the Gospel preach, we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. And then we have Sunday school at about noon for kids. We come again uh, together at 5 o'clock every night, uh, Sunday night, for uh, teaching, prayer, and singing. And then we also have various uh, midweek groups, Bible studies, men's, women's, and also other Bible studies as well uh, throughout the week. So. I want to invite you out to worship with us. If you know anybody in the area here in North County of San Diego, uh, invite them as well. Let them know. You can find out more about us on our website, OceansideURC.org, or also on all those various social media. You'll find us as well. God bless. Hey, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts. We're doing something new. All ads will be fronted before the episode for unimpeded listening pleasure. A quick plug for our show, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. Would you consider giving to our show? We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so your donations are now tax deductible. We've got two options to give. One 
Email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com if you'd like to send a check or use our direct donor link. Or two, go to our show notes and click on our donor box link to give a recurring donation or a one-time gift. You can also click on our Patreon account in the show notes and sign up for monthly exclusives, merchandise, coupon codes with publishers we work with, giveaways for our subscribers, and much more. All donations we're gifted are used exclusively to pursue our mission to bridge the gap to reform Christian theology. Would you join us? Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Yeah, once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today's book club episode is brought to us by Brazos Press, and we have a repeat guest today, Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson. She's on our show today talking about her new book, Flannery O'Connor's why do the heathen rage a behind the scenes look at a work in progress it's unfinished novel in print for the first time and uh we're excited to talk about this and for a lot of audience she's introducing who a recognizable name flannery o'connor is some other people might know a little bit more about her but i guarantee that she's going to educate all of us more than we already know about Flannery O'Connor. So such an important person in history. And uh, just thank Jessica for bringing her back out in the open. We have an endorsement for this book we've had on before Esau McCauley. If you guys remember his episode with us on a book club episode, he's a Wheaton college college uh, author of how far to the promised land episode. <clears throat> so I'll read uh, his endorsement. This book is part detective story, part examination of O'Connor in the context of a changing America, especially racially, and part exploration of one of America's great writers in the process of creation. A great endorsement. Um, so if you guys go to our show notes, there's a link to Brazos Press. Click that. It'll take you actually right to this book so you can easy click and order and then uh, just reminders of how to find our show on the internet. You can email us. You can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. We have a growing YouTube audience. Subscribe to us there. You can watch our book club and seasonal episodes. And then uh, just other information. If you aren't going to a church and not a, a member of a church, we would love to uh, encourage everyone to do that. Uh, find a creedal uh, Christian church to call home. If you want to look for one specifically that's reformed, there is a NAPARC link. It's a local church finder, and it'll take you one, to one of the uh, reformed denominations to check out. So, uh, yeah, let's jump into this. I'll let Peter further introduce our repeat friend and guest today, Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Yeah, we have... Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, who's the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine, Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, and we'll talk about that a little bit in this episode as well. Previously taught at the University of Dallas, she's an author or editor of eight books, including Reading for the Love of God, which is the last book we had her on for, The Scandal of Holiness, which won the Christianity Today 2023 Award of Merit, and Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor, who shows up obviously in this book. <laughs> 
and Fyodor, or Fyodor Dostoevsky, winner of 2018 uh, Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. Hooten Wilson speaks around the world in topics as varied as Russian novelists, Catholic thinkers, and Christian ways of reading. So it's a pleasure having you back on the show again after, I think, just a few months or six months, seven months, whatever it was. So thanks for coming back on, Dr. Hooten Wilson. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I appreciate the repeat invite. Of course. Yeah, I, I saw... Flannery O'Connor and I saw Jessica Hooten Wilson. I was like, what better combination <laughs> than both of those things? Oh, thanks. So thanks. icebreaker question. We like asking mm-hmm. kind of it's usually off the wall questions that the author doesn't know that we know, but this one, like it's December 4th when we're recording this, and I can't not ask it. We're beginning of Advent season. So what are there any like fun Christian or Christmas traditions in the Hooten Wilson household? Oh. They're like, we just gotta get this done this time of year. Oh man, you're catching me on a crazy year because we're in the midst of moving. So we're true. living in so two we'll say places like on a at the same time. On a on a non-move yeah. year, what's like a Hooten Wilson tradition? We usually try to find a, a new book for Advent that we're okay. gonna read all the way through. Hmm. And so last year we read J.R.L. Tolkien's letters to his son. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we read his the Christmas letters. So they began just to one son. And then over the over the time, he ended up writing them to his daughter by the end because he had, you know, four kids all separated by years. And the yeah. older ones, I think, thought it was less cool by the time we got to the, the youngest. I, yeah. Um, You're like, this sure, is freaking J.R.R. Tolkien. This is amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was good. So I, I don't know what will... You bringing that up makes me very aware that we have to pick a book right now. Um, but it, it's no pressure. Season. You're moving. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it's a good reminder because we enjoy doing that as a family. We're in the middle of the Wing Feather Saga right now, and that is not Christmas. Oh, I've so heard we need to so probably... much stuff about this. Yeah, <laughs> it's so fun. Okay. It's so fun. But I might have to convince my kids to pause and remember the Christian sure. year and and remember our tradition. But that's what we usually do. Okay, your tradition is so much cooler than ours, and we started this. <laughs> Five or six years ago, I'm an office fanatic, like the office shelf yeah. fanatic. In our tradition, listeners, this is not as cool as reading J.R. Tolkien or anything like that, is going through all the office Christmas episodes. That's oh. like my thing. I, like, <laughs> it's not as cool. It's not literary. It's not very Christian, but it's just like, it's just what I do. <laughs> I actually do that for Thanksgiving for friends. I love watching oh, okay. the friends episodes for oh. Thanksgiving. Those are my favorite friends episodes is the Thanksgiving ones. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So like for whatever reason, the office Christmas yeah. episodes just there like give go. me the mood. Yeah. So, yep. So beyond your bio, beyond all this literary stuff, let our listeners know <laughs> a little bit more about the woman, Jessica Hooten Wilson. Yeah. Um, I know it's a, it's a big question. So, a question. Huge question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say like the, the defining things in my life is number one family. I do a lot of speaking and traveling. And yeah. what I constantly underline for people is if you can bring my family, I'll probably say yes. Hmm. If my family can join me because I just, I want them to see the world that I'm seeing. I want them to be part of the memories I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love going to speak at churches and at sure. schools and and so forth, like I always want them to be part of it. So I've got four children. Um, I just had my fourth five months ago. That's right. I think so... you were pregnant with your fourth the last time we had really? you on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've had my fourth, Junia Magdalene. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I spend a lot of time with my family, very involved. Actually, that's why we're, it's one of the reasons we're going to Pepperdine because I mm. will be the only one working and we're, we're going full time oh. there. So, yeah. um, to, to take on a role as, 
Fletcher Jones chair of great books there on campus right. and get yep. to teach again. And that's nice. right. Yeah. Is, that, is that a new chair or is that like, did they make this for you or has that been established before? It's been established before. Yeah. I think we talked last time because I was at University of Dallas and a That's chair right. they made for yeah. me during that time. Yeah. So the, this one goes back. My first great books teacher when I was at Pepperdine, because it's my alma mater, was That's the right. first Fletcher Jones chair that they had. Okay. And it was crazy because he also went on to be a president of a university and he oh. wrote me a letter that I just got in the mail last week and said, you know, I took a picture of my first class teaching at Pepperdine and you're in it in the year 2000 he's like i had oh. it on my desk all the way through my presidency and so he wrote me like congratulations on picking up the That's chair cool. after i taught you 20 something years ago so yeah, cool. a lot of exciting cool. stuff going on for you i mean you're right when you're going to move into pepperdine your this mm -hmm. book is coming out too and your your daughter's your five kid. months old yeah, this i mean is a lot of stuff that's cool congratulations times yeah. three on all this stuff well and this yeah this book has been um probably i don't know how to put it gestating longer longer than for a lot longer it got birth <laughs> yeah. after a long gestation period yeah that's yeah good. so long time coming for this book there you go well yeah talking about this book you got into flannery o'connor and her writing early on in your life and there's kind of i think there's there's a story with you and a professor mm -hmm. talking about your writing and then her writing uh her writing seemingly aided your own so can you talk to us a little bit about your introduction to flannery and nick mm -hmm. will have a more kind of pointed question about flannery but your how did you get introduced to flannery o'connor and then how did you come to editing this book on flannery o'connor's why did they uh heathens rage yeah, so one of the stories that I tell in the book in probably more details, I wanted to be a writer and I also was a strong Christian. And when I was younger, my dad didn't understand all the dark things I was writing. I was writing a lot of fiction that was really dark. And he said, you know, you need to write light. Like we believe mm -hmm. in a, a God of hope. And mm -hmm. um, what that was doing to my work was sanitizing everything. It's like I was unable to write about Good Friday and mm -hmm. I didn't, I only knew how to write in a world of resurrection. And this professor that I met at Rhodes College, he gave me a Flannery O'Connor story to hopefully kind of turn the tide on the way that I was looking at it. And I loved it. It was the life you saved, maybe your own. Yeah. It was so dark. It was <laughs> so, so dark. dark. I just I read mean, it two weeks ago. And I was like, oh my oh. gosh, this is not what I expected that to end like. I know, like a tornado is coming after him at the end. Like the rottenness of the world is coming to eat him alive that, that he himself is part of. Um, but at the same time, there was something so hopeful about that. You know, one of the things I think me, people misunderstand about O'Connor, but that I got at 15 was she says somewhere that, you know, like Wyndham Lewis, who writes about the rot in the hill, it's not because you like rot. It's because mm -hmm. you like the hill mm -hmm. and you don't want the rot to be there. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I just perceived that right away in O'Connor's work. I understood then how to write about darkness without looking like I loved the darkness. Totally. Yep. But actually because I loved the light. Great yep. perspective. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But yeah. You don't want to, so, like you said, you don't want to sanitize the darkness because the light just doesn't become as luminous as it could be without the dark. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Awesome. So, cool. yeah. Well said, Peter. <laughs> but that's, that's what I was trying to go for as I was learning, learning Flannery and wanting to imitate her. Yeah. Yeah. And then before Nick asked this question, how did you come to editing this book, which is technically unfinished? Yeah, that was Billy Sessions. And I dedicate the book to him and to Ralph Wood. So Ralph Wood was my dissertation director, called the Dean of O'Connor Studies sometimes, jokingly. And he 
he directed my dissertation. We went over to Italy. It was the first international Flannery O'Connor conference where wow. we both presented. And I had known a little Italian and had some familiarity with the area from living abroad. And so I ended up being like the graduate student tour guide of the group of keynotes. And we all went out to dinner. Oh, and yeah. among them was Billy Sessions. And Billy Sessions started telling me about Flannery's unfinished novel, which I had never heard of before. Yeah. So that started a whole trek to the archives, which I write about. And um, the estate was just very eager to kind of get out a lot of her work. So during the time I've been working on this, they've also released her prayer journal. Hmm. Um, they've released her juvenilia, the things that she was writing when she was in high school. So there's just been this kind of concerted effort over the last decade or so to put more and more of her unfinished things out there in people's hands. I mean, if you look at her posthumous work, most of her stuff was published after she died because she didn't get to live very long. No, she was what, 39, so, 38 when she died? 39, yeah. Yeah. So so most of what we know about her is from her un- like her posthumous work. Oh, okay. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. And her name, Flannery O'Connor, is fairly recognizable, uh, generally speaking, if you said her name. like Most people are like, yeah, I think I've heard that name before. But most yeah. people, even including myself before this book, if you're like, all right, well, who is she? What's about her? I'd be like, I... I need help. I, I don't know how to describe who she was, unfortunately, but it's, thank you again for bringing her back out because she's so important. We can learn a lot from her. She's she's an important uh, historical uh, figure in recent history. But mm-hmm. yeah, this this opens up the door for you to do her the honor of explaining her bio to the world. Again, she's not living mm-hmm. right now. So um, it's to the audience that doesn't know who she is, maybe only knows her name and nothing else. Uh, please just kind of give a bio of Flannery O'Connor. You know, for a country who says that it's a really Christian country and there's a lot of Christians, if you think about all of our great writers, which ones are like the strong Christian, like devotedly Orthodox Christian writers that we have in our history. And it's, it's very hard to come by some names. Flannery is one that you can point to. And Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she has a stamp made of her. I mean, this is someone who is recognized as a renowned writer of genius yep. and yet you know in our in our church is also a big figure she was devout she uh was catholic um but <laughs> she always joked about being like if she uh, was going to be protestant she'd be pentecostal because <laughs> she was just very much a believer in the reality of the holy spirit um she was someone who thought the incarnation was the main point of her life and it was the main point of her work. Like I would even say this pun intended, like the crux of her work. So Flannery, she she took the, the claims of the scriptures to be the truth on which she rested, not only her life, but her work. And in the Protestant South, she's telling the story mostly through Protestant eyes, because mm-hmm. that's the majority of that's what are around her. Um, mm-hmm. She was a Georgia writer. She does not come from like a aristocratic family like Walker Percy, another, you know, Southern writer. She instead is more in the rural and her and her family was con- were constantly depending on her relatives for support. Hmm. So she grew up on a farm that wasn't even actually owned by them, um, that her uncle gave them because her father had passed away. And so she, you just have to see her not in the sense of like white gentility, like some false idea ah. of like the, the white privilege, um, that's not the world that she lived in and resided in and said, she's, you know, she's on a farm. 
she said, you know, the only thing I know about the land is it's underneath me. So she wasn't a farmer, but she would sit and she would write every single day. And when she was diagnosed with lupus, it did not become a moment of despair for her, but almost gave her a limitation of time. Uh, You know, she, we're all dying, but she knew (laughs) that, that her time was much shorter. And so she dedicated that to her work and, and making sure that she used her talents that God gave her during the time she had. Mm. yeah very nice yeah so getting more into this book or rather kind of unfinished book mm-hmm. what what's it like maybe tell our listeners um who yeah people may be used to edited books but edited books of maybe a bunch of editors and they're doing something together and finishing off a work but this is an editing work of an unfinished book with mm-hmm. manuscripts mm-hmm. everywhere so what what's it like editing this and then seeing as this was an unfinished at the time of Flannery, like what, what, what was that like editing this yeah. work, compiling it all together, all the marginalia, all the kind of other explanations. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to give credit to Harrison Scott key. And if you don't know his works, you have to go look him up. He's one of my favorite writers. Um, also become a friend over the last decade or so. And he and I were talking about this in the early stages when I was just getting started with this project. Like, how do I do this? There's 378 pages. There's just like all over the map. Like it's episodic and um, the novel's not really there, but what's there is so good. How do I get people to read it? And he's like, what is most interesting is the story behind the story. And that just kind of stuck with me. Like, how do I tell the story behind the story? Because the Mm. story itself, right? The fiction is not finished. Mm-hmm. but but Flannery has died. So there has to be a full story somewhere in this material. And and so that's what I did is I kind of went through and it's just very experimental. Like I kept, I was able to protect her work so you can see the pieces mm-hmm. that she left there. Um, but I also had to make decisions because the scenes themselves still aren't finished. You know, they have her handwriting on them. They have um, five or six different versions of every scene. You have different names for the characters throughout the process. So there were a lot of editorial decisions. I did not try to do it by myself. I was regularly writing people in the scholarly community. I was regularly writing writers and asking writers, like, do you see how this works? Does this fit? Uh, so I, I don't claim to have done this all alone. I was totally. constantly in dialogue with friends trying to get this material right and to do it well. You yeah. kind of had to enter her head in a way. Yeah. You've been in it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been reading her since I was 15. Mm-hmm. And so I, the writer that I know better than any other writer and my, my family's actually, so my parents both met in Warner Robins, which is about an hour or so from Milledgeville. <laughs> so I'm kind of from that area Okay, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I know her world really well. Um, I know her work backwards and forwards. I can tell you where things are from. I know her lines. Um, I've read her biography so many times and and can put her letters, you know, in order on her biography. Mm. And um, so I just, I lived in her world for so many years, even more than just the 10 years I worked on this project. Sure. Yeah. Before next, next question, maybe this is not an aside, but kind of an addendum to my last question, Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not just editing all this stuff and kind of presenting it in a book form, Mm -hmm. but you have like editorial comments. There's like little snippets of chapters that you have after stuff or introducing stuff. Maybe like what's what are you trying to do in those things and, and help them sure. along with reading this with reading this short story? 
you know, separate from this, but I am going to like, it's going to tie all the way around. So the last book I wrote was Reading for the Love of God. And one of the things that I found is that people have this assumption that you don't need help reading the Bible, right? And and yet, like to even get the Bible in your hands, like you have to, like a lot of people had to read it and translate it and give you editorial, like they had to make editorial decisions, but they're kind of, they're unseen when you receive the Bible. So one of the things that I've done is I'm showing you what normally goes unseen in the process. Uh, okay. That's kind mm. of what I felt like I was doing is that reading is not a solo activity, but it's actually more of a communal one. Just like writing is not a solo activity. It's a communal one. And it's based on, we don't even see most of the things it's based on. It's based on our history. It's based on our biography. It's based on our current moment. It's based on the headlines, the things we're reading and all of that goes into the writing process, whether you can draw line by line, which, you know, what does it allude to and how did this character come to be? And so what I've done instead is I've kind of turned the skin inside out and shown you the skeleton and shown you how all the pieces work together more than you usually get in a book. And so for writers, I feel like it's a really helpful book to be able to see that. It's more like exoskeleton, right? Sure. Um, and the way that I've put the book together. This is a purely hypothetical question, but I'm curious. Yeah. If the book were finished, do you think you would have done something different? Oh, I did finish it. That's so, yeah. I mean, like this is, this is 10 years coming. So this is my third version of doing it this way. Or if, so, if Flannery, yeah. I mean, if Flannery had finished her work, do yeah. you think your editing work would have been different? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I, if she had actually finished the work, I, I don't know if you ever read three days before the shooting, the uh, Ralph Ellison book or, uh-uh. um, the Hemingway one that was finished by Michael Peach. Uh, oh, summer. yeah, I know which one you're talking. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or like Sanditon, people f- finish Jane Austen all the time. Yep. And yep. and so you don't really have to show the editorial process in that. Gotcha. But if I was going to both protect her work and have a completed story, then I had to go ahead and, and do it the way that I did it. I think that's the only way to be able to still feel like you're reading a story. Cool. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, that was helpful. Peter's question was the editorial background and structure going into mm-hmm. this. Mine is, what's the story all about? You know, can you give a 30,000 foot view of of this story? Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the main characters? What's the plot? Is the, What's the drama? Uh, is there a resolution? You know, all that <laughs> yeah. stuff that makes up yeah. a story. So what's going yeah. on? What's the yeah, story? People are like unfinished. About? Does this have a resolution? Like, <laughs> am I going to feel good at the end of the story? <laughs> or is it going to be like horrible murders and like and, other stories of. And what hunters. maybe what part, what part did you pick up where she left off that you kind mm-hmm. of finished, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I would say there's two different stories taking place on the different levels. So there's the, the work that Flannery began, which is the coolest start of a story. And I hope it just starts a bunch of fan fiction, right? Right. Like um, she was trying to understand human relationships. Um, She's dealing with gender and she's dealing with race and she's dealing (laughs) with region. It's not the story I expected, but it's the story we got. No, right. So it's um, a lot of people accused her for a long time of not uh, centering race in her work. And in this one, she does. So mm-hmm. she, you know, kind of takes the bulls by the by the horns. So she um, starts with Walter, you know, allusion to like Walter the Penniless or, you know, um, Walter Hilton or something like that. She takes this figure who is an intellectual in the South, who is white, who's living on a plantation, very similar to her own. Mm-hmm. 
And he decides to write letters to people. And what he's doing is actually kind of being a troll, like who we would yeah. see on like Twitter or something. His letters are hilarious. Yeah. He's, he's writing all these letters pretending to be different people yeah. and attacking people. But he starts having a correspondence with a woman named Una Gibbs, who's in New York, who believes in not only the civil rights movement, but in a larger sense of like, I'm going to love all people all the time. And like, I've broken through the ceiling of religion and I am free now to love everybody. Uh, very, just very 1960s mm-hmm. kind of embrace of love and that defi- that way of defining it. Mm-hmm. So he wants to test her faith in this new yep. religion she's come up with by posing as a black man and making yeah. love to her through the mail. And <laughs> uh, and really challenges her like you would never, never actually love me if you were here and met me face to face. And of course, now she's coming. Yep. And that's, oh, that's really, the, yeah, right? <laughs> like that's the start of the novel. So what we get to see behind the scenes is Flannery trying to figure out more where she was going to go with this. She starts writing their past. She try, starts trying to create who they were as children. And um, so she has all of this other material that goes along with it. But the plot doesn't really go beyond those moments. No. That's what we get to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The and ending's like kind of funny. He's like, oh, I'm sick and I have these diseases. Don't come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> right he's like stop yeah. um and which then, we wouldn't have novel. wanted to happen like, oh, okay. yeah yeah we want to see like what they, they have to meet something has to happen like are they going to fall in love are they yeah. is one yeah. of them going to murder the other one like there has to be something when she sees that he's not here. black what she's going to do right. with him yeah yeah yes um and so then i'm telling the second story which is okay. why did she write this mm-hmm. and as readers then what do we do so i'm kind oh, of telling okay. our story of like what do we do with this material and why that matters? Right. And I think why she was starting to write it gives us the impetus to continue these same conversations now that Mm. she only got started with. What's the lesson we learn from her writing? Yeah. I think that we're all in process. Mm -hmm. It's so funny to me how people have been canceling writers when they discover sin. And it's like, what was there something in which people assumed writers weren't sinners like they had exactly. like a different yeah. Yeah. ontology than the rest of us like where did we get this idea that the yeah. writers have to write without sin and without ever saying anything stupid and and so i'm kind of exposing that like no mm-hmm. all writers are in process but guess what that that's just showing what readers are readers are all in process mm-hmm. so there's then become a responsibility for a reader as much as there is for a writer to be telling that in process story to not assume that we have finished symphonies on this side of life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That beautifully tees up this question and it's because I wrote it, which is why. It's <laughs> this question. And but I'm slightly changing the order because I think this makes more sense here, but you wrote about an incident at Loyola. You know, I, I don't remember if you mm-hmm. named the university or not, but I looked it up just to, to see <laughs> some of the more, more resources where O'Connor is canceled. Just exactly like mm-hmm. you said, she, her name is taken off. I think a dorm or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, because students assumed from a flawed source being, I think their teacher that she was a racist. And this is, you talk about this a little bit at length, but the real story is a lot more complex because of her writing style, her voice and her use of sarcasm and projection. Mm-hmm. So can you help us out? Like, how does she write about this stuff and how does it come across maybe incorrectly for those who aren't used to Flannery's writing style? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to explain in the amount of time that we have. Um, But yes, she says racist things. 
Like mm-hmm. that's 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 a given. I don't think we should apologize for that. Like that's horrible that yeah, she you, did you, it. I think you spend some time in the book talking about yeah. the N word. Like should I actually say the N word because she says it? Right, right. So there's no there's no getting around that part. Um, I think what's more complex is one where she was as a person in her process in her pilgrimage she did not agree with racism no. and she writes against racism and her story actually transcends her own personal biography yeah. when it comes to what she was writing and how she was trying to show and i think this is brilliant and i didn't learn this until i was like in my 20s and 30s she's trying to show that race is an artificial construct hmm. like that I, I I missed that until Willie James Jennings like points it out in the Christian imagination. Like I missed that race is an artificial construct. And here mm-hmm. she is writing about that in the fifties and saying mm-hmm. like, we have to pass down racism for racism to keep mm-hmm. existing. Like children are not born hating the person yeah. next to them. At the right? height of Southern racism, she's writing about some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's what's <laughs> profound and so to completely erase that because she doesn't fit in 2023, or I guess this was 2020 when she was accused, because it doesn't fit 2020's idea mm. of how we're supposed to treat one another, like that, that becomes a problem. Hmm. Um, because I don't think the Flannery of 2020 would have looked like the fan- Flannery of 1964. So yeah, Flannery O'Connor, this Catholic author is not particularly known for heartwarming stories. And like we talked about pre-recording, I read a collection of her short stories, um, kind of coincidentally, providentially in the midst of reading your editing editor work of, of her stuff. And the first story in this short story was and ended with a grandma getting shot in the chest. And then the story ends and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is not what I expected her writing to be like, but it, it peers in the depths of human depravity with no happy ending. And so can you maybe show us or describe, is, is are there parallels in Why Did the Heathen Rage with her other work? Does she pull from other stories? Maybe similarities in characters. You kind of talked about this a little bit. And what might yeah. there be different in this from her other work as well? Yeah. So J.F. Powers, who was a novelist writing at the same time as Flannery O'Connor, he said, you know, you've got to get out of this habit of killing off your characters. <laughs> and this was 1960 and yep. he, she actually listened huh. and so if you look after 1960 she's really not killing off her characters um yep. more and more she's keeping them alive so everything rises must converge yes someone yep. is like maybe dying of a stroke but sure. it's not the same kind of ending julian is still alive and living to see you know the, the next day yeah. um in this world of guild and sorrow uh you have parker's back Right. You have um, Revelation, of course, mm-hmm. is probably the most obvious example, mm-hmm. but you have more and more characters are living. And, and she's also responding to a world. She now has a television and television became uh, more graphic and more in your face and more violent uh, in her living room. And that was changing the way that she was writing. So she is kind of having a departure from her early 1950s work in which everybody is getting shot or maimed or blinded or gored, etc. And she wrote that way because she's wanting to shock the system. So she's doing the right thing. She's trying to scandalize in the right way. Yeah. And she's trying to scandalize them with the truth of the unseen things. So yep. the, the the drama of the scene world has to be uh, bright, really, for her readers, right? She said the famous line is that she drew large startling figures for the near blind or she shouted for the, the near mm-hmm. deaf. So she is is trying to do that. But towards the end, she said, 
okay, now I've gotten to the point in my career where I have to imitate God's still small voice when he talks to Elijah. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm going. And so what we have in the Why Did Heathen Rage is she's trying for less shock and more of the still small voice. We also see a lot of, she was reading a lot of saints and so forth at the very end, reading a lot of like letters of Jerome and Augustine, and she quotes the letters of Jerome. So we know she was in the midst of reading it while she was writing this. So what I see in Why Did the Heathen Rage is her also maybe imitating the saints. And if I imagine what the ending would look like for me, I would take Walter and turn him into a holy fool. Like I would move him towards what it, what would it look huh. like after his conversion and write a whole novel like that. I think that would be brilliant. Yeah, because what she does well in other stories too is there's both like direct killing and direct like killing off of characters, but there's other mm -hmm. times where it's like kind of assumed in her writing, like this is what's mm -hmm. happening, but she doesn't actually tell you about it. But she talks about other things that make you think, oh, that actually did happen back then. Yes, But yes. she's so good at like covering things <clears throat> and not telling you what happened. And your mm -hmm. mind like goes into different places like, well, this must have happened because why wouldn't have happened? Yeah. Yeah, she trusts the reader, and I think she gives a lot of grace to the reader that way. Yeah, well, it's it's riveting. She like like you were riveted. I was I was like, why haven't I read more of her before this? This is this is so good. Um, so so last last question. Um, what do you hope <clears throat> with the publishing of Why Did the Heathens Rage? What do you hope this adds to the Flannery canon? Mm -hmm. Maybe is there other stuff kind of in the pipeline that you might know of, or is this the last work or whatever questions may come of that? And then what are you hoping readers come away with after reading an unfinished story, which is, which is different than what we're used to. And maybe the closest thing you can come to is like, I, I think of like the ending of Mark, like the short ending of Mark mm -hmm. is like somewhat of an unfinished story, but it kind of like it leads to you longing mm -hmm. for what's happening next. And, yeah. and maybe what are your insights and editing work from this that you can share with your readers? Yeah, you bring up Mark, but you could also say the same thing with Acts. And I think true, a, true, the true. biblical precedent is really good for this because a lot of times, especially when I was being raised in church, I was thinking along the lines of like the Bible is finished, like the stories of God's church are done, mm -hmm. right? They're wrapped up and there's Genesis, Revelation, like we have a full story. Whereas the reality is Acts doesn't really finish no. because we're still the acts of the church. We're still mm -hmm. in that act of God's drama. I think with Flannery, that's what she gives us. So she gives us the ability to still be in that act. And as artists and authors and writers, we don't have to only look to the past and be like, well, wasn't it great when C.S. Lewis wrote good stuff? And wasn't it great when Flannery O'Connor wrote great books? In some sense, reading her unfinished work reminds us that, yes, she was a genius, but she was a she had a gift and she was faithful with that gift. And what can happen if we're faithful with our gifts? Hmm. Right. She she also we see that it's not as perfect as her earlier work because she as a perfectionist didn't get the time with it that she could have. So we now as writers, can, we don't have to be scared that genius just it has to pop out perfect. And then and that's what you have. Instead, it's like, no, you need to faithfully cultivate. You need to revise. You have to work at mm -hmm. stuff. And when you do, what can God do with your with your talents? What can he give the world through your art and through your faithfulness? That, that's what I've received from Flannery, not just studying mm. her complete works, which are our genius, but also getting to see the letters, getting to see behind the scenes, getting to read Why Did the Heathen Rage and realize, like all of us, she was always just, there's a story to tell. Let's tell mm. it and let's and let's see what God does with that. Yeah. Well, like you were saying, beginning of this, I think there's some 
knee-jerk reaction from a lot of Christians when they read her story as like you said, we're, we're, we tend to be used to like feel good stories or we want feel good mm-hmm. stories. We want the story to have a kind of a nice and neat ending, which is why like I'm convinced of the short ending of Mark and not the long ending of Mark is like yeah. that, like long ending is kind of an easy, like, Oh, it ends versus mm-hmm. the short ending is like, Oh, like it leaves, it leaves you with like this impulse for more. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're not like, we like the finish. We like, we, we like the, mm-hmm. the, the resolve of the story and yeah, Flannery like doesn't scratch that itch for a lot of us. She like she makes us think, okay, what are you going to do next? Yeah. yeah, but I think even the scriptures do that. I, yeah, you know mm-hmm. our our idea of the nice tidy ending is yeah. just not biblical. No, it's not. You know, yeah. so uh, so when we try to it's think more of the Christian culture than uh, biblical literature. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we're trying to think if if we're supposed to be like Christ. You know, he ends the gospels, not by saying like, I'm, I'm resurrected. So everything's going to be wonderful. Now I'm resurrected. So take up your cross. Like this is where the journey leads. Yeah. yeah. Now it's your turn. And, and that's just not a tied up ending with a bow, right? There's so many things that can happen from that kind of go and make disciples ending. Um, mm. And so I, I think that Flannery's work always challenges us to go against cultural Christianity and more towards imitation of the incarnation. Yeah, well, I was thinking, with biblically speaking, I was thinking like how Second Kings ends. It's like a to mm-hmm. be continued. It's very like abrupt and like, oh, well, yeah. what now? Like, and then right at the also, end of the story, he's captured. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cool to be continued, but it's like, well, what now? And then also, like, we're living in Acts twenty nine right now. Like you said, there's yes. Acts twenty eight, and you know, we're now. So, good points biblically. Yeah. yeah. No, well, thank you. Yeah, and maybe it's a. Uh kind of end this with our listeners, anything that you're working on, what, like, what mm-hmm. are you looking forward to? What, like, what, what are you teaching yet Pepperdine and yeah. all that good stuff? So I'm going to be teaching great books, which is all the things that kind of influenced Flannery to get to be who yeah. she was. Right. What, I'm so be teaching... for the listener who's not informed, yeah. what are the great books? Cause I think people are hearing about this more and more often, like classical education, yeah. great books. Like what, mm. what is that? Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's the greatest things in human history that have ever been thought and said. Oh, that's pretty good. So, nice. yeah. <laughs> I want that. <laughs> exactly. So, that's a good Putting them all in conversation. So, you know, we have this rich tradition where a lot of people would recognize a canon of, you know, Homer and Virgil and so forth, which are phenomenal. And I always teach them. Um, but I also love teaching some of the things that we're just now finding too. You know, Mar- um, Marjorie Kemp, for example, wrote a book in the 1400s and we knew it existed. We found it in 1934. And mm. now, is it part of the canon? Because it's hmm. this historical 14th century book that's just so good and so powerful. So I think the canon is, is just more fluid. It's dynamic. So when I talk about great books, I'm talking about just always, what is the greatest that has been thought and said? And for me, that begins with scripture and then goes from there. So so I'm teaching the Bible in concert with all of these other geniuses that came after the apostles, including Flannery. Yeah. So that's what I'm teaching. I love it. I love getting to teach Dostoevsky and Dante and Augustine every year. Yep. Um, it's just, it's such a gift. Mm-hmm. But on writing, I'm writing actually a lot about women right now. And um, I'm writing something that I hope is more fictional. I'm very excited about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm imitating another 14th century writer. So Christine de Pizan. Oh, she wrote this yeah. Book. Yep. Have yep. you read that? We So we... We had uh, you. You're not going to know this name because he's too small. But Craig Troxel, who's an OPC minister, but he's a humongous, like fiction, literary, and poetry reader. And so we read all of this stuff in his spirituality classes. So cool. Okay, that is so cool. Yeah. So 
she wrote in, you know, 1400s about um, the book of the city of ladies and basically Uh like, what are women and what are they for? And who are all the great women throughout history and mythology that we just Mm -hmm. have never heard of and not uplifted. And it's a whole book on it. Well, it's written in the 1400s. There's a lot that's happened since then. Um, And also we don't write really, we don't read allegorical narrative as much like ladies descending that are reason and rectitude and justice doesn't really make sense to us so i instead am gonna be christine in my version right now it's so much fun and dorothy l sayers stein and anna julia cooper are descending to have conversations with me and it is just i am some conversation partners right there (gasps) right they're brilliant and so i'm just i'm having a lot of fun getting to write a dialogue that's similar like what are women and then picking up with Christine where she left off. So interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, if people yeah. want to read the modern Christine Pizan, then they can read yeah. Jessica Hood and Wilson whenever this comes out. This would be That's what I hope. This would be super fun. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you um, first so much for your work, for bringing the great Thanks. books back in conversation, for bringing Flannery O'Connor back in conversation, for Christians yeah. who should be reading them. For non-Christians, for whoever whoever picks her up, yeah. I mean, she's she's a ridiculously gifted writer. Yes, um, just like like Nick said, her name is known, but her work is not mm-hmm. not as well known. And hopefully, this kicks back interest. And thanks for your time. And you will be moving into our neck of the woods pretty soon, not too <laughs> far away from where I'll be. So this would be fun mm-hmm. to yeah have you in the area and see great books and and a classical Christianity kind of thrive in this area. Hopefully, so thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you for you. your work. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. uh, We all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to wet your palate. You can We have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there. Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and and read really well. All under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ.